Episode 2, Agency Member Interview, Including Diversity Spotlight. Hello, I am here with Emmy and Jessica, my two amazing supervisors. Um, So something that I just wanted to start off with is I would love if you could describe your organization, its goals, activities, and structure, Um, and then going into maybe how many employees are in the organization, what are their positions, and basically just providing any additional relevant information that you guys see fit. So um, I'm Emmy. <laughs> uh, APNC is a 501c6 nonprofit, so it does make our structure a little bit different. Um, we have two sides of the house because of that. We have our membership side, which is what the C6 part of nonprofit means. We are a membership organization. Um, and then the other side of our house is all of our programmatic things. Um, and most of these initiatives are funded by grants. Um, so the goal of APNC is to provide support, um, for anyone in the substance use disorder field. So across the entire, uh, continuum, prevention, harm reduction, treatment, recovery, and peer support, um, we provide help to them. And then we represent them legislatively as well, making sure that no laws are going to harm them or their clients. Um, we have grown from just one employee four years, five years ago, five years ago, we had one full-time employee and we are now up to 15. So rapid growth, um, mostly on the programmatic side of things. No, I, that sounded great. Um, unless we missed one of the questions. <laughs> no, no, that, that sounded great. What services does the agency provide and do the services provided fit with the mission, vision, and values of APNC? Yeah, so our mission statement is to support North Carolina experts dedicated to substance use disorder um, while providing resources and research. And so I do think that a lot of our programs fit right in with that. Um, We provide on the membership side of things, continuing education events such as conferences and regional trainings. Um, We have a whole legislative program um, to get their voice and we do a lot of surveys and feedback. And then on the programmatic side, it's a lot of workforce development um, and research for for our um, members and and the students that we serve. So um, some of the programs we have are PFS, which stands for Partnership for Success, It is a technical assistance prevention program, um, helping communities implement prevention that actually works, um, stays away from fear tactics, things like that. Um, We have a entire collegiate team working in collegiate recovery, working in wellness development um, on campuses and providing support to students through something called a leadership academy. Um, We have internships to help students get prepared to enter this field. Um, we have peer support, uh, which focuses a lot on bridging gaps um, in um, kind of like understanding what the role of a peer support is and how important they are, and also working with law enforcement and clergy to really break down any kind of stigma that they might have or um, barriers for peer support specialists to be involved. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting a whole 
team of people, but (laughs) those are the ones that come to my head first. No, yeah, no, that's perfect. Uh, Jessica, do you have anything to add? I think the only team that we might have um, misplaced that notably um, we don't have too much interaction with, but do a lot of prevention. Big project right now is an app or a website that really illustrates what our environments look like. So, for example, um, if you clicked on Lake County, you would be able to see how many parks are in the area, how many sidewalks are near you, um, what resources available for the residents that live there just um, mapping social determinants of health that are available for folks. Um, and that's really helpful for members as well. Yeah, but also to advocate for resources in their area. Great. Describe the population that APNC serves. So what are some common issues faced by this population? Yeah, so... I think um, uh, because we are a C6, like I mentioned earlier, we are a little bit step removed. So we're not necessarily working directly with people in use or in recovery, but instead a lot of the treatment providers, prevention professionals, harm reductionists, peer support specialists, um, and then people who work in the recovery field. So um, a lot of the issues they face right now, what we're hearing back um, is that everybody is overworked. Um, There is not enough people entering in the field right now or or staying in the field to keep up with the demand um, that we are seeing post-COVID. I think another big issue faced is funding. Um, A lot of the funding streams kind of prevent collaboration because it has to be spent on prevention or it has to be spent on treatment. And it makes working together a little bit more difficult than people in the field would like. Um, And that comes all the way even down to competitive and good salaries. Um, People are really struggling to get paid uh, for their certification amount that they should be, you know, kind of like that base level, um, just because we are we're struggling across the board in, in that funding arena. What are ways do you think that uh, like the public could help in funding um, yeah, I think advocacy is, is a big part of it. Um, we have seen some growth recently in people kind of finally understanding the importance of mental and behavioral health um, and using those dollars there. But I think um, anything to kind of break down that stigma, understand that we do need support um, and kind of uh, starting the conversations of that it's normal and, and okay to, to have help um, just because you have stuff to add? No, I think that was perfect. Um, definitely pushing down um, against that stigma that we might see around substance use. Um, when we break down that stigma, we're the folks that are using substances, um, but we're also breaking it down the field as well, right? Mental and behavioral health. Um, so yeah, I think so I would love if you could discuss the strategies um, or interventions used at the agency. Yeah, of course. Um, So since there are so many moving parts within our agency, there are a couple different strategies that um, our friends at different 
um, I'll talk a bit more specifically about the higher ed section. So when it comes to us, we're in a unique position because we are so new. So we utilize the strategic prevention and recovery framework, which um, is the different strategies that we see out there when it comes to, I'll at least speak to social work because that's, you know, I'm a social worker. Um, so the first stage in that is assessment. And that's at kind of just assessing the environment working in, um, assessing where all of our, the communities that we're working with are in and just seeing what's out there so that we make sure we're not replicating the work once we get to the following is. Um, so moving forward from like the easement stage, that's when you really get into like planning, um, actually taking actions on the plans that you've been working towards and then evaluating um, and ensuring that the initiatives that you're doing are sustainable and culturally competent. Um, so that's something that we use. It's been proven time and time again, not only in the substance use field, other sectors as well um, to work. So that's kind of what we use and it guides our work. Great. Emmy, do you have anything to add? No, I think she nailed it. Um, we are definitely follow that for pretty much all of our programming. So across the continuum. Great. Um, but when thinking about to or just evidence-based strategies in general, um, which do you think are the most um, valuable at APNC? Like, would you say maybe um, family therapy or group interventions or behavior therapy? Or what are some um, evidence-based strategies that you guys use? Yeah, so I would say, again, because we are working with our members, those aren't, those aren't necessary strategies because we work more so in a, in a community capacity rather than an individual or family capacity, which you see a lot of those interventions work. Um, but I would say the ones that you listed are certainly, you know, great options for those that are working directly with clients. I know, again, coming from that self-work background, you know, I've used some of those interventions. They worked really well for my clients. Um, and I just use them as well. Yeah, something that I've, I don't know if you have I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, just something that I've learned at Elon a lot is micro, um, kind of the micro yeah. field rather than the macro field. So working with APNC, I just thought I should say this, which is important, is honestly exposing myself to that macro area is something that I haven't really immersed myself in. So it's been great immersing myself in that um, because I've really been able to see, especially like cultural competency between, or honestly among all people. So it's been very interesting. Yeah. And I think another point on that is, you know, when you learning in micro, you might find similarities in some of the interventions that we use as well, because when you're working with clients, you are also kind of assess where they're at. Um, you are working with them to kind of figure out what, quote unquote intervention would work best for them to help them deal with some of and moving forward from that. So you see a lot of similarities. They just have different names, but the same language. Um, you just kind of have to think about it in the different levels and systems that we work in. Yeah, that systems thinking is vital when you get to the macro side of stuff. Um, I would say you know, and a lot of the skills that you use in a micro type of situation, you're going to use in macro as well. Active listening, motivational interviewing, re like recapping the conversation, like all of those skills that you learn in macro will, I mean, micro will definitely apply 
as well. Um, it's just using a little bit of different frameworks. So um, instead of like CBT or DBT, we're thinking about um, SPRF, like Jessica was talking about earlier, or we're thinking about the community engagement continuum and like things like that. And now we will move on to the diversity spotlight. So the first question is, what social issues affects marginalized clients? Yes, um, I'm speaking specifically like about addiction professionals. Um, so for your answer for number one, I would say that like probably 70 to 80% of folks that work in this field are white cis females. And when I hear that kind of thing, I think, you know, like, why don't we have more diverse, you know, addiction professionals that truly represent the clients they serve? Because we can imagine that, you know, the clients we serve are not mostly, you know, white cis females. We serve a variety of folks. Um, and when I hear that, I think of the barriers that folks face just trying to get into this field. I think about the expensive amount of schooling that they have to go through, which in itself, like colleges and universities were not made for, you know, non-white, non-cis people. Um, so the expensive schooling they have to go through on top of unpaid internships and volunteering. And then once they're in the field, um, they work in careers where they're overworked, underpaid, um, while expected to have gone to school for like their master's and doctorates. Um, so all of it doesn't align. Um, so yeah, like I just think the folks that are able to actually get into this field, you know, like myself, hold a great amount of privilege being able to you know, overcome all of those barriers that are set in front of them. You know, they're able to navigate this financially and socially comfortably to feel comfortable in like a higher ed space that wasn't made for them. Um, and that's kind of how I see a lot of the social issues that our clients or addiction professionals go through. So let me know if that makes sense. Now, uh, I would love for you guys to discuss what efforts APNC is engaged to reduce a social problem for the marginalized group. Okay, and now for college students. So I think college students also face some pretty similar challenges, especially when it comes to navigating like the college environment, which again, like was not made for them. So when I think we're talking about specifically college, or excuse me, college students in recovery, um, colleges and universities are not recovery safe spaces you know they're they're coming into these really high stress environments sometimes um i mean i'll speak for myself without like the social skills or like um the right mindset of like navigating this harsh environment where like drugs and alcohol are kind of like socially acceptable and kind of expected you know like you're in college you're allowed to make these mistakes and have fun um so i think that those are some of the risks that students in recovery face um, and while there are resources available to students, they certainly were not made for all students. Like, I would say our CRCs were primarily probably made in mind for cis white, you know, men, which our CRC students do not make up, um, all of them especially. So even the resources that are available are not helpful. And at certain points, our students also leave, you know, into the environments on their communities. They don't stay on their campuses. So even if the campus may be safe and they may be provided all the resources in the world, um, if the community is not safe, if the community is not safe, then that can pose a risk to um, whatever recovery means to them. So let me know if you have questions about that. So APNC um, as a whole works with colleges in a variety of different ways. Um, 
the most macro kind of side of it would be advocacy um, for both staff um, who work with students who are at risk or who might be in active addiction, um, making sure that they have access to trainings, advocating against policies that could be potentially harmful to those students, um, anything along those lines. Um, in addition, we have our collegiate recovery communities on campuses. Um, we are not the powerhouses behind that. You know, I have to give props to each coordinator on each campus specifically. Um, we are just kind of here in a TA or assistant supportive role um, for them. And then I think our leadership academies do a lot to help educate the students on what they can do as advocates, um, what they can do if they want to enter this field, and how they can kind of change the landscape of their campuses um, while they are still students. What are some strengths and protective factors that you both have identified among your clients? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. And I'll be honest, Caroline, thank you for giving us a couple of minutes to talk it through. Um, and I think like when I thought about that question, I reflected back on like how we are so new. So again, we really are in that assessment phase and we ourselves are trying to figure out what those protective factors and strengths are in our communities. Um, so focusing in on a little bit more about um, who we're talking about, our clients are our wellness departments. They are um, those that are working with students in so like our collegiate recovery communities. And what we're starting to find are those that are showcasing resiliency, like during COVID, especially with the increased need of having to meet the demands of students um, who meet these services, um, you know, that resiliency that they face with the issues that they're facing um, is a really strong asset to have. Um, something that we are working on that we found is also a really great strength and protective factor are the connectedness that the campus ha campuses have with their communities. So if you find that the campuses have a really great relationship with some of the resources that are out there, like their food banks, um, their local coalitions, um, or other harm reduction measures that are out there, you can find a really strong sense of support for the students that are residing in there as well. So those are a couple of the things that we're trying to figure out now, um, but I've outlined a few of those. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to add, though, Emmy. That was so good. I got, like, lost in listening. Um, yeah, I think the same kind of uh, similar words and similar strengths come about when I think about our students in Leadership Academy. So that is one of our programs that we finally get to actually interact with students one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and uh, you can see it in them as well, just being, trying to overcome everything that the last two years threw at them and, like, still wanting to do this academy, still being excited to be a part of it, still eager to learn, um, I think is something that's really important to, to note um, about them. Yeah, great. Well, thank you both so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to learn more in this sadly small amount of time I have. So thank you both again.